All right, if you would, please take your Bibles to Matthew chapter 15. Now, I have no doubt in my mind that she feels as if she may have not done her best job on that song, but if you can sing about Amazing Grace and not be moved, I don't want you singing. You have no business singing about something you've obviously not tasted of if you're not already moved by how amazing His grace truly is in our life. And so, honestly, it's refreshing to see a Christian who is really in tune with what God's grace means to them. God's grace is so amazing, and, you know, the Bible teaches us that it's new every morning. And uh, he, he offers that grace to all. And that's something to be moved about, something to move moved for. Matthew chapter 15 this evening. We won't be long. I am amazed at how quickly our Sunday night services move. It is uh, 20 minutes into the service, and I've already gotten the, the, the uh, pulpit. And so basically, you're in for an hour and 10-minute sermon. Too bad I don't know that much Bible. <laughs> so we're just going to go with whatever we have down. And if you get out early, you get out early. But Matthew chapter 15 tonight, we'll start reading in verse 21. The Bible says... Then Jesus went thence and departed into the coasts of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coasts and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she crieth after us. But he answered and said, I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not meet to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. She said, Truth, Lord. Yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Speaking of grace... It's exactly what she's referring to right there. Verse 28. Then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith. Be it unto thee, even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. Everybody about every close, we'll go to the Lord and ask his blessing on the sermon tonight. Father, we pray that now that you would please help us. Lord, as I've already prayed in private, I need you. I have nothing to deliver apart from your Holy Spirit's guidance. Lord, if this is done in my power, it will fall on deaf ears. But Father, I've prayed and I've asked, I've sought for the Spirit's guidance and direction. Now, Lord, I pray that every hearer in the room will have sought for the same thing. Direction and guidance to open their eyes and open their ears and even, Lord, open their heart so that the Word of God may penetrate their lives. Lord, we're meeting tonight because we want to hear from you, not because we want to fellowship, not because we want to be moved by music. We want to be moved by the Word of God. And Lord, you've chosen to do that through the preaching of your Word. So Father, please tonight, keep all your many promises to us and show us a great thing. And I pray in your Son's precious name. Amen. Have you ever felt pain? I mean, I mean real pain. I remember when I was younger, 
uh, my dad decided to let me shoot a 22 pistol for the very first time. And that gun decided to punch me in the face when I pulled the trigger. And I still have the scar to this day. I remember when I pulled the trigger like this, I did not have proper shooting form. And that gun basically recoiled and hit me right in the face as maybe a four-year-old child. And I remember the immense amount of pain that I felt that day. My dad showed great compassion. He says, get back over here and shoot that bucket. And uh, he said it as redneck and hick as we possibly could have, I'm sure. But uh, I, I felt pain before. But I'm not specifically speaking of physical pain this evening. I mean, we, sure, we've all felt that. We've all maybe been in a car accident or maybe a sports injury or, or maybe we just got out of bed one morning and our neck hurt wrong. We've all felt physical pain, but I'm tonight speaking more of emotional pain. And in my brief life and short experience, I've noticed that I'll take physical pain over emotional pain just about every day of the week. You know those days when it feels like somebody just took your heart? and put it in a vice and locked it down as tight as it would go and then took it about three turns farther? You know those days when it feels like the person most close to you ought to have your back and they just simply did not? Emotional pain. Tremendous, tremendous burden many of us carry. There's one little boy that I know for a fact has never felt pain. In 2013, ABC News did a story on a little boy by the name of Isaac Brown. He was born with a rare disease in which he literally feels absolutely no pain. His mother has told stories about how in his toddler years he would often stick his hand in a scolding hot cup of coffee and feel no, no pain at all, no, no tears, no cry, no, no problem at all. One time she even told a story about how Isaac took his hand and placed on the coils of the stovetop and just held it there. And obviously this is causing him tremendous amounts of damage, but he did not know. And so she had to literally teach him dangers of pain. They said, you know, most parents teach their children ABCs and 123s. We're teaching our child how to say the word ouch. There was one day when a Isaac was playing around and he dropped a coffee cup and the coffee cup shattered all over the ground and the pieces of glass were around and he went and took up, uh, grabbed a, a large piece of the coffee cup and went to his mother's door and knocked on the door with the jagged edge of the coffee cup slicing into his hand, knocking on the door and when she came to the door she found a bloodied hand and coffee cup all over the floor. Now I don't know about you but I am not like Isaac at all. I don't enjoy pain in the least little bit. Now I would say that I have a relatively high tolerance for pain, but that does not mean that I enjoy it at all. I was in college and I remember one night my team had made it to the, the Super Bowl, the flag football Super Bowl, except when you got to the playoffs it was no longer flag football. And my team had done a good job throughout the year and we were playing and I felt like we had the best team and we went out there and and it was early in the game, in the first half, and I was playing linebacker. I went to tackle this guy, and I decided to throw him down extra hard, and my leg slapped against the ground, and I felt it snap. 
And now one of the most godly men that I've ever met in my life was Dr. Getch. And maybe you know a little bit about him. Maybe you've read some of his books. Maybe you've even been taught from some of his Sunday school curriculum. And he was our official that night, our referee. And as I hobbled over to the bench, I, I just felt like it was broken. I had never broken a bone before, but I felt like that night it was broken. Because I've had many sprains and many tears, but this one felt different. And Dr. Getch came over and he said, how do you feel, Andrew? I said, well, it hurts, Dr. Getch. And he said... Well, I bet it's just a bad sprain. And I assure you, Dr. Getch is no prophet, because the doctor assured me it was absolutely broken. I remember that night going to shower after this football game in which I got all sweaty and dirty and grassy, and, and I just felt nasty. I hobbled up the stairs into my dorm room, and I went to take a shower. And have you ever tried standing on wooden foot when you shower? It's very difficult. Flamingos have a good thing going. They're pretty talented birds. They're not just pretty. I remember that night I was, you know, trying to use my knee to balance to the side of the shower as I shampooed my hair. It was just a terrible night. My, knee, my leg hurt all night long. I don't like pain, but I definitely don't like emotional pain. You see, this lady, as we read her story, don't imagine her as just another miracle. Don't imagine her as just another story, as we often do as we read through the Gospels. Imagine her as a mother. A mother who cares about her child, but has no answers outside of Christ. And that's where we find ourselves. And we will learn three lessons tonight from this lady's life. First of all, and we've learned this lesson almost every single week in this series, the lesson of opposition. The lesson of opposition. Now, she comes to Christ knowing that he is the healer. No doubt, having heard the stories, the many stories so far of his miraculous dealings <coughs> with people all throughout the land. He was becoming very famous. And at this point, maybe you don't know this, but in Christ's ministry, he is literally trying to conceal himself or hide himself and even, be, even with him trying to do that, people are finding him like this lady saying, I have an issue, will you please help me? And that's what this lady was doing. She was finding Christ because she had an issue. But this lady had tremendous opposition that faced her. Three real oppositions that I can point out. First of all, her gender was against her. I mean, she approaches Jesus... Very similar to how someone would approach a Jewish rabbi. And that's very easy to see in our passage as she comes to him with a Jewish greeting. Thou son of David. And so she's coming to him as a Jewish leader. And Jewish leaders at this point in time did not respect women at all. They did not care much about women. They did not care much for women. And so as she comes to Christ, she's already got one huge hurdle in her path, and that is her gender. But secondly, not only was it her gender, but her genealogy. You see, Mark tells us that this lady was a Syrophoenician. She was not a Jew. She was a Gentile. And she comes to Christ wanting to have a miracle done. She comes to Christ needing a miracle done. But she comes to Christ not with the right birthright. Not with the right uh, 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 line of David. Not with the right line in her genes. She comes to Christ as a Gentile. You see, she had the wrong gender. She also had the wrong genealogy. 
strategy. But thirdly, I want you to notice this. Not only were those two things against her, but the gang was against her. Look here in verse 23. So she comes to Christ wanting an answer, but he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she crieth after us. See, I don't know about you, but sometimes I get this false idea that the hard part in these people's lives was encouraging themselves to go to Christ. I mean, for some of them, (coughs) for some of them it was fighting through the crowd. For some of them it was uh, trying to get lowered through a roof. For some of them it was just simply approaching the healer in great throngs of people. But no doubt they had trouble encouraging themselves to think, Oh, he might care about me. And I would think that that would be the greatest battle. But once you arrive to Christ, I would think that the victory was almost won. I mean, you're in the presence of Christ. He's got the power to heal you. The solution is at his fingertips or at the tip of his tongue as Christ would only speak words. That's all that you had to do was get to Christ and almost every time the problem was solved. But she gets to Christ and the disciples. I mean, the guys who should have been supporting miracles. The guys who should have been doing the work of the ministry should have said, okay, you have a problem. This is what's going on in your life. Christ, let me introduce you to, to the Syrophoenician lady here. She's got a problem. But instead of that, she comes to Christ and catches flack from his companions. Isn't that often how Christianity works, though? I mean, Christ is very rarely our deterrent. And I would say never our deterrent. Most of the time, it's our friends. Most of the time, it's the people that you're sitting down the row from. You have a problem, you have an issue, and you say, hey, man, will you pray for me? And they say, oh, that looks a little hopeless, doesn't it? And often, it's the ones that should be encouraging us that provide the most discouragement. I'm reminded of Job. Now, Job in his book has no doubt one of the greatest trials that is ever placed upon a man. In fact, I'll tell you this, he caught Satan's best. Satan didn't want Job to succeed. Satan wanted Job to fall on his face. That way he could look at God and say, God, there's nobody faithful to you. And so as Satan went to war with Job, Satan gave it his all. Now he approaches Job, and we know the story. One man comes to Job, a servant, and tells him that his cattle are dead. Literally, as he ends his sentence, almost another man comes to Job. Job, you don't understand. Your entire family was in one building, and a great tornado or whirlwind came, and and the building collapsed. And Job, I don't know how to tell you this, but all of your children are dead. And at the end of all of this, after one man delivers bad news, after another man delivers bad news, after another man delivers bad news, Job's wife says, Job, why don't you just curse God and die? Times are bad for old Job. But if he has anybody, he's got his spiritual friends. You know, the ones that are the the, the spiritual guys. The one that no doubt Job probably texted in the morning, Hey man, this is what I got out of my devotions, what about you? I 
becoming the one who Job read their Facebook post and felt closer to God because of it. That very rarely happens, by the way. <coughs> Spacebook, right, Dad? <laughs> Spacebook. But these were the guys who, who Job should have been encouraged by. And they show up, and for a little bit, it's almost like they are encouraging him. But then you read on, and they start asking him questions like, Job, you've got sin in your life, don't you? I mean, obviously, God's hand is not pleased with you. What's going on in your life that you need to fix? And if you read the story of Job at all, these friends for just a brief moment look like they're helping, and then all of a sudden they turn on him and like a pack of wolves attack him. That's often how it is. And it's almost like when we're hurting the most, somebody kicks us while we're down. Can I encourage you, no matter what side of the coin you're on tonight, whether you're the one that's hurting or you're the one hearing the hurt, don't be a discourager. If you are in a valley, if you are in a trial, don't just dump it on somebody else to have, so that they can have a bad day. And if you know a friend or you know someone that's going through something, don't go share more bad news with them or don't go show them how bleak their circumstances are because of what's going on in their life. Be an encourager. Be a Barnabas. Be somebody who says, you know, friend, there's light at the end of the tunnel and his name is Jesus Christ. Be a friend. Be an encourager. No doubt this woman came to Christ, but she faced tremendous opposition. One day, hey, JT, we got announcements going, buddy. I'm proud of that announcement. That's a good thing. I mean, no doubt we need to go to the play, but JT just got a little bored. I'll show you opposition, Andrew. <laughs> got him. <laughs> This woman came to Christ and she faced tremendous opposition. One day there was a neighbor that came to his neighbor and he said, Neighbor, I need to borrow your lawnmower. The neighbor said, Well, I can't let you borrow my lawnmower because every single flight from New York to Los Angeles has been canceled today. Kind of puzzled and bewildered. The neighbor who needed the lawnmower said, now tell me, what does flights from New York to Los Angeles being delayed or canceled have anything to do with me needing your lawnmower? And the neighbor with a lawnmower said, well, if I don't want you to use my lawnmower, one excuse is as good as the other. Now, I think Christians often bail out when they face a little opposition, and it's almost like, oh, I've got an excuse now. Can I say one excuse is just as good as the other? I mean, this woman, was a, uh, this, this was a lady, had no business going to a Jewish leader. She was a Gentile, had no business going to a Jewish leader. Uh, she had all sorts of opposition, and even when she gets to Christ, it's almost like those who should be encouraging her says, No, you don't deserve it, Jesus, just send her away. You're going to face opposition. God has given us access to his throne, and God has given us the opportunity whereby we can go to him, but that doesn't mean that we're not going to face any type of bumps along the road. Friend, encourage yourself that Christ wants to help. 
But maybe, just maybe, he's using this opposition as an opportunity. That's the second lesson we learn, a lesson of opportunity. You see, no doubt she did face tremendous opposition. Great difficulty along the road. She would hit one bump, she would come to another. She would finally get over that one, she would hit another. She faced it, man. But Christ was using it as an opportunity to grow her, to strengthen her. And I want you to notice that Christ was developing her faith and not destroying it. Look in verse 22. This woman comes to Christ and... The Bible says, And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with a devil. So what's, what's Jesus' response? She's done the hard part. She's, she's come to him with the problem. It's, it's cast at his feet now. But he answered her not a word. Now, does that sound like the God that you know? Does that sound like the God who cares about us, who loves us, who wants to work for us? Does that sound like the same one? And then we go on to see, uh, as she, uh, the disciples say, Send her away, she crieth after us. But he answered her and said, I am not sent but into the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, it's almost like Jesus says, I didn't come for you, Gentile. And if you casually read the text, that is the vibe that you'll get. But Christ was not trying to destroy what little faith she had. Christ was trying to grow the faith into something greater. Christ wanted her to have a little stick to Christ wanted her to stay. And Christ wanted her to learn a valuable lesson here. He was developing this young woman, not destroying her faith. You know what Lamentations 3 says? It says, The Lord is good unto them that wait uh, uh, for Him. To the soul that seeketh Him. Pay attention. It is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. (laughs) Now hold on. Do you mean to tell me that the Bible is saying that it can be a good thing for us to have to wait? Do you mean that the Bible is trying to tell us that there are lessons to be learned when Christ is not answering our problems immediately? You know, I'll put it like this. He's stretching you. He's wanting you to learn something. And often don't we, oh Lord, I don't know what to do. We don't get our answer immediately and then we try piecing together the puzzle pieces. That's not what God wants you to do. God wants you to stand still and see the salvation of the Lord as Moses proclaimed. It is good that a man should wait and see the salvation of the Lord. That's a good thing. So this lady approaches Christ and says, Lord, I have a problem. At first he ignores her. Then the disciples say, oh, just send her away. She's bugging us. And then she says, Lord, help me. And Jesus says, I didn't come for the Gentiles. I came for the Jews. And that's a true statement. But we will learn that he came for all. And so he says, I didn't come for the Gentiles. I came for the Jews. And she says, Lord, save me. He was not destroying her faith. He was developing it. Now, I've not been a parent very long. Uh, I would say that I am the greatest parent of all time, but... 
I would also say that I have the greatest daughter of all time. And uh, I think probably I'm biased on both accounts. Yeah, I'm better than Amy. That's what you're thinking. <laughs> Obviously. No, I, I, I don't do the greatest job. I, I've already punched my daughter in the face once. I think I've shared that story with you guys on accident. But CPS did come question me. That was not fun. But I was putting my hand in the carrier to carry her, and I knocked her out. Don't worry, I felt like trash and cried myself to sleep the next three weeks. All right? But, uh, so I'm not the greatest parent, and I've not been a parent long, so we've not faced many battles along the road. Basically, our battle now is, you know, trying to figure out whether we want to feed spinach and pears or whether we want to be cool parents and just feed her, like, sweet potatoes. And so that's our battles now. But I was raised by some pretty good parents. And along the way, there were times when Dad would, you know, give us, like, dessert when we should not have been eating dessert. And there were times when we would eat moon pies right before supper just because there were moon pies to be eaten. And I thank Dad for those days, and I thank Mom for cooking the good meals that we often complained about but were actually really good and we should have known better as children. We were just were full on moon pies. But even if you're not a parent, you understand that there's a lesson that we're not to eat dessert and spoil our appetite for the real meal, Right? And occasionally I understand that it's okay. I mean, occasionally if your kid did good on something, you know, like they, they hit a ball on T-ball and you want to be a cool parent, they say, I want a banana split. You go ahead into Brahms and you get them the banana split. But I don't think any parent that's a good parent would feed their children whatever they want because children are never going to want what's good for them all the time. See, I want steak and potato, and I would think that's a healthy meal for every kid. But I don't think it's wise to constantly consume dessert instead of the meal. What kind of parent would God be if he always gave us blessings before the adversity? Wouldn't it spoil us? I mean, sometimes it's almost like we expect the blessing before the adversity. But God, I really want the banana split. And maybe he's saying, but you really need the peas. Some bumps in the road. You're saying, God, I, I want the bluebell. And he says, but maybe it's time to eat the okra. I don't know. I'm just making them up. I don't eat vegetables. <laughs> what kind of father would he be if he always gave us exactly what we want when we wanted it? The other day I was behind a man in line and his son was wanting a candy bar. And his son was throwing a temper tantrum. And I, I don't judge people how they parent. But this man, the boy began to cry, Daddy, I want, Daddy, I want. And you know what? As a parent, I was rooting that he would not give in. I was, come on, man, stay strong. Stay strong, man. Go, D-A-D, Dad, you know, of this little cheer section. You know what? That guy didn't give in. That's a good father. He knew his son didn't need a candy bar, and I'm sure that same dad in a different situation would have totally given his kid a Hershey bar. But that day, he won one for the parents. 
kind of father would God be if he always gave us the chocolate or the dessert before the adversity? He won't do that because he's not destroying our faith. He wants to develop it. And I hope that you understand as Jesus is talking to this woman, he was never doing it condescendingly. He was never doing it in an arrogant tone. He was trying to help her know that faith is required for a miracle. Faith is required for healing, and it has been throughout the entire series. Not only was he developing her faith and not destroying it, he was going to deliver her and not discriminate. Now, I want you to learn a lesson here. She approaches Christ in verse 22. And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast. Now, as I've already said, Mark tells us that she's Syrophoenician. It's apparent as Jesus talks to her. She is not a Jew, but she's a Gentile. Her greeting to the Lord Jesus is, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. And she greets the Lord with what would be considered a Jewish or a Hebrew greeting. Almost as if to ride the coattails of a Jew. Almost to say, Lord, I know I am not particularly Gentile, but... Uh, or I'm not particularly a Jew, but Lord, I do favor the Jews. And Lord, I know you are the Messiah, which is what the son of David meant. Lord, I know that you're the one. You're the Jewish Messiah. Lord, help me. It's almost like Jesus doesn't respond. And I really believe this. It's because Christ accepted her for who she was, not for who she could become. If she comes almost like, I kind of want to be a Jew. Like, son of David, help me. And and I I think that the reason Jesus didn't even respond to that is because he accepted her as a Gentile. John 3.16, no doubt, probably the most famous verse in the Bible. The Bible says that God so loved the world that he sent his son to die for it. But I want you to know... He died for it in a sinful state. Christ was not in a sinful state. Don't misunderstand that. But God loved the world when it was sinful. He did not love the world for what it could become. He already loved the world. And he already gave his son for the world in its wicked, uh, terrible state. I don't care who you are tonight... God loves you for who you are. I don't care the skeletons in your closet. God loves you. And he died for you who you are now. And he wants you to become something much greater, not for him, but for you. And he's offering you an alternative. God loves you for who you are. You know, you don't have to become anybody for God to respect you. You don't have to put on your nice suit or you don't have to read the King James Version for God to care about you. He already does that. Sometimes in Christianity, it's almost like we're trying to earn His love. But if we were trying to do that, we couldn't. He did that out of His grace. He did that out of His amazing, unfailing compassion. And now this woman lays at His feet saying, Lord, help me. She didn't have to come right in the coattails of the Jews. Christ came to die for her as a Gentile. You know how I know that? Because the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 10, verse 12, For there is 
no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon His name. There's no difference in that. This morning I was teaching our teenagers, are ministers and missionaries more spiritual than normal people? And I taught them, I, I looked around the classroom, I said, are you a Jew? And they said, no. Exactly, you're not a Jew. Sometimes it's hard baiting answers out of your teenagers. And I said, okay, since you're not a Jew, are you a Jew? He said, uh, uh, no. Exactly, you're not a Jew either. What about you? I went around the room and I asked four or five different kids whether they were Jewish. And they said, no, no, no. And I said, you know what? God still loves you. And I, I, I'm glad tonight that God chose the Jews but died for me. I'm glad God chose the Jews. I'm glad He loves Israel. But I'm glad that on Calvary, He didn't just demonstrate His love towards them. He demonstrated it towards me. And He demonstrated it towards you. The same Lord is rich over all unto all that call upon His name. You see, He wasn't going to discriminate against this woman. He was wanting to deliver her. The lesson of opposition, the lesson of opportunity... But thirdly, I want you to notice the lesson of overflow. And I would have you note that at this point in Matthew, there have only been two people who Jesus refers to as having great faith. Both of them Gentile. Neither one of them of the house of David. Jesus looks at Gentiles and says, great faith. But thirdly, the lesson of overflow. Now, this woman teaches us a tremendous lesson. And it's almost a lesson that Jesus tried to over and over teach his disciples that never got through to them. It's that God not only has the answer, God not only has the solution, but he is overflowing and abounding with them. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and he loves you. And so God does have overflow. This woman demonstrated faith in his ability in verse 27. Look, the Bible says, And she said, Truth, Lord, uh, he, in response to verse 26, when he said, It is not meat to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. She says in verse 27, Truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Now let me paint you the visual as I see it in my mind. And I hope that maybe this will help you. I picture a banquet going on, a tremendous feast, a very large gathering, a very large table. And I picture Jesus at the head of the table. And I picture seats upon seats upon seats as men and women fill the seats, every single one of them Jew, every single one of them uh, of the house and lineage of Abraham, every one of them feasting on the bounty of the, 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 the banquet of our Lord. And, and one grabs a turkey leg, and one grabs the bread and passes it down, and one says, hey, give me some chips and salsa. And, and they, they're banqueting. There's this large feast taking place. And they're having such a good time that food is overflowing off the table. Now, they don't notice it because they've got plenty. They've got another turkey. They've got some more Antonio's chips and salsa. They've got it, man. But they have so much of it, it is almost as if they're discarding it. And that's the picture I have in mind. As she says, yes, Lord, 
But the dogs eat from the crumbs that fall from the master's table. She was the dog. And there's a lesson that I won't even get into, but Christ was not referring to to her as a a crude type of mutt, but as uh, more as a little pet. And she says, uh, "Lord, I just want the crumbs. Lord, I just want the overflow. Lord, I just want the excess because, Lord, that's plenty for me." You know what David says in Psalm chapter twenty-three, verse five. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, and my cup runneth over. You see, you want to know how good our God is? Good enough and better. You want to know how many blessings He has? Plenty and more. You want to know how great He is? Awesome and even greater than you can imagine. That's our God! So this woman humbly bows at his feet and he says, I came for the house of Israel. I did not come to give miracles to you. She says, Lord, I know. But just give me the excess. Give me the abundance. The overflow because you are that great. What a lesson. Because she is demonstrating tons of faith in him. She's demonstrating tons of faith in his ability to provide, in his power, and in his authority. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, a very familiar verse. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, that is our God. Exceedingly more than you can even imagine, that's how good he is. This woman's just saying, Lord, give me the extra, because it's plenty. In your trial, the Lord has plenty. In your uh, difficulty, you're facing tremendous opposition, I promise you, He can just trim off the fat and give to you to be plenty. Uh, you, You have problems? Ask for the abundance, because it's plenty for us. She demonstrates tremendous faith in His ability but also faith in His abundance. First uh, Chronicles chapter 29, verse 11, the Bible says, Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Our God's so powerful and so strong. And you know what He asks us to do? Trust Him. Believe that He cares. And faith, There's a story told about General Robert E. Lee, a very famous man, not for his Christian walk, although probably should be. As I did research on General Lee, there was a reverend who served under him and often dealt with him, and he talked about how uh, devoted Mr. Lee was to Christ. But after the Civil War ended, shortly after the war ended, he attended church. And after the sermon was preached, he went down to the altar. At the foot of the altar there with him was a slave, a a black man. And he knelt and he prayed right beside him. His brother, uh, General Lee, returned to the seat where he was seated. Someone approached him and he said, how could you do? How could you kneel beside a black man? General Lee said, the ground is level at the cross. You see, 
Although Christ may have came for Israel, Israel's standing on the same ground as me at the cross. Christ changed everything. Christ gave me just as much as he gave Israel. He gave me his life and ultimately his death. And I can trust in his resurrection just as if they can. I hope tonight that we realize as a church, problems come. Our Lord can do exceedingly abundant, above all that we can ask or think. All he's asking us to do is trust.